From Minnesota Public Radio, this is an American Radio Works special, New York Works. I'm Dean Olsher. Frank Sabatino is one of two commercial fishermen left in Jamaica Bay. Walter Backerman still delivers seltzer along the same route worked by his father and his grandfather. Charlie Zimmerman builds the rooftop water tanks that dot Manhattan's skyline. In the coming hour, we're going to take you around New York City and introduce you to some of the people who are keeping alive an older way of life, a portrait of a vanishing city. This is New York Works, a special from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. First, this news update. This is a special from American Radio Works. I'm Dean Olsher. New York Works is an audio portrait of a vanishing city, of people who are keeping alive an older way of life. Seltzer, which is fizzy water in bottles, has a long history in New York. Jacob Rosenblum began his route in 1919, delivering bottles of seltzer with a horse-drawn wagon to the tenements of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. In the late 1940s, his son also became a seltzer delivery man, and later his grandson took over the route. There used to be thousands of seltzer men in the city, and now Jacob Rosenblum's grandson, Walter Backerman, is one of a handful left. Uh, the time now is uh, 6.30 in the morning. I'm at 111th Street, right off of Amsterdam Avenue, not far from Broadway. Now, let me start from scratch. My name is Walter the Seltzer Man. This is my truck. It has a little bit of everything. A bunch of old, old bottles, office supplies. I got uh, aspirins in case anyone comes in the truck out of headache. Got flares, digital camera. I have guidebooks. I got tour books. In case I, I'm curious when I'm driving by and I see an old building, I want to know a little bit about the history. Whereas I have a, a truck that's basically extremely chaotic. So anyone else would appear to be a shambles. But to me, it's a... Uh, Semi-organized. Gotta get a case down from the rack. Make sure the bottles work. I squirt them. Make sure that they haven't leaked, that the gas is still good. You got blue bottles, you got green bottles. I just like the look of it. I think the seltzer bottle looks beautiful. Here's 1952. See, yeah, I was born. The bottle's as old as I am. And the funny thing about it is that uh, now to this day, the bottles are worth so much that I'd be better off pulling out all my bottles out of every customer's house and selling them slowly as antiques and collectibles. At this sad point in time, the route is unfortunately worth more dead than it is alive. Shout out man. I have pleasure in my route. I really, it's not just the money. I enjoy the route. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy the camaraderie. I enjoy the socialism. And I like talking to people. There you are. Hello. How you doing? Yeah, come get up there. Come around. Yes. I got this out. Oh, yes. Well, you play piano, right? Yes. I remember one time, my wife said, look, don't take it seriously. You're a novelty for the minute. Yo, this is the delivery guy. I don't think you're anything more than that. You're like the guy delivering Poland Springs to a water cooler. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. And I said to her, God, I hope not. 
Stop, so okay, well, always good to see you, right? Good to see you. When I asked my grandfather about the route in the old days, he said to me, it was a tough route. It's, uh, it's a hard way to make a living. I really wish that you would find something easy to do. And my father, too, I remember I went to visit my father in the hospital, and my father was really uh, very, very sick. You know, his body was kind of giving up on him. And the weird part about it, the last thing my father ever said to me was, uh, you know, I have nightmares about the route. I go to sleep and dream I'm on the route. It just never ends. I wish you didn't follow my footsteps. So when you see your grandfather filled with regret about you following the footsteps, you see your father filled with regret about you following the footsteps, it's got to make you think maybe you could have done something different with your life. Sooner or later, nothing lasts forever, and maybe time when this is the end of the world for the Seltzer route. The time is now 2.30, and we're, uh, we're in the Van Cortland Park section of, of the Bronx. We're about to make a, a right turn onto Hillman Avenue, going around the corner from uh, Mrs. Blitz. She's been on my route since before I was born, and she was buying Seltzer for my father then. Her parents bought for my grandparents, and uh, now they're gone, Mrs. Blitz's husband's gone, my father's gone, and all that's left of this whole story is me and, and Mrs. Blitz. Hello. Oh. oh, don't you look beautiful? You got all dressed up for me? Come in. I have a defective bottle here. When Walter comes in the door on Saturday, we, we just go back over the years. I mean, the seltzer is great, but it's Walter. That's the thing about his product. He's the product. It's not the seltzer, it's Walter. He talks about retiring, I get sick. While we're on the subject, would you like a glass of seltzer? Walter, would you like yeah, a seltzer? Yeah, why not? I could make you a, with chocolate and milk. What's sad now is the seltzer that's being sold in the supermarket doesn't come close. It doesn't have the taste, it's nothing. When you open the top, it fizzes a little the first time, and then it dies a horrible death. It's awful. We got the real thing, baby. That's right. Drink some more. How many years did you actually live in this apartment? 52 years. Wow. And my father was delivering to you so in the late 40s. It was great. Everybody had different men in their lives. You had the, the seltzer man, you had the milkman. These were the people in your life. It's a different world today. And Tempest is fugitive, which means time is passing. Well, you knew good. that. Latin, baby, of course it does. You knew that. Time flies. It's funny, like, uh, you know, I remember coming here as a kid. I might have been 10 years old, and now I'm almost 50, and I'm still doing it. You're not just the seltzer man. You're too bright. When you told me you were leaving law school to work with Al, I was devastated. Well, that's, a, that's the road not so taken. I have so much regard for lawyers. I mean, I, I'd rather take an honest seltzer man any day of the week, but the future for the honest seltzer man is what? Is what? I guess you're right. Seltzer is just a, an anachronistic profession. 
So I think you're beautiful. Well, God bless you, baby. You're looking pretty good yourself. <laughs> Took me hours to get to look like this. The time is now uh, 6.30 at night, and uh, it's time to head back home. You know, my whole life was spent doing seltzers. And the funny thing about it is that since I'm the, on one of the last left, as far as the seltzer world is concerned, it's like to a lot of people I'm selling memories. And when I come back and I bring the seltzer, it's the same bottles that my father delivered to them, maybe my grandfather delivered to the grandparents. You come to their house, for some reason, for that moment in time, the husband's still there, the kids are still at home, they're young. Somehow, I bring in history. I like being the seltzer man. If you look up at the rooftops of New York, you'll see them. Giant structures that look like huge wooden barrels. Water tanks that make it possible for buildings taller than six stories to get decent water pressure. It takes a crew of six to eight men a whole day to take down an old tank and build a new one so that tenants can have water for their showers in the morning. Everything revolves around the water. No one thinks about it as long as when they turn their faucet on, they get water. But as soon as they turn their faucet on and they don't get no water, then they're looking for us. How thick the bottom is? How thick the bottom is? Yeah. It's a normal bottom. Well, like two and three eighths, right? Two and three eighths, yeah. My name is Charles Zimmerman. I've been working with Rosenwack Wood Tanks for approximately 22 years. And we're at the uh, 31 Union Square South working on a one-day job which consists of removing the old tank, taking it completely off the structure, and installing a brand new 10 by 12 wood tank on a 16-story building. Any building over six stories in Manhattan has some sort of tank on it. They have to have it because the city pressure will only go six stories. The beauty about a wood tank is it can be put up in one day. It comes in pieces. You can transport it almost anywhere. It's passed up to the uh, steel structure by hand. Everything's done by hand. It looks kind of ancient, but uh, it's the only way to do it. It's a grueling job. It's, uh, you gotta get used to it. A lot of times we'll get a new guy and uh, sometimes the new guys don't make it half a day. They say this is crazy. They don't like the work. They can't handle the work. Of course, it can be potentially very dangerous. If you, uh, you slip, you can fall long distance and you can get hurt pretty bad. You can fall anywhere from four feet to uh, as tall as the building is. If you go off one of the sides that are, uh, the two sides that are on the edge of the building, it's quite a ways down. Okay, there you go. What do you need now? I don't need it. You done with the two and a half? Yeah. Well, you still need the four. I got a four up here. The higher up you get, the more you see. But you'd be surprised how much stuff you can see down like 15, 16 stories. Look how many tanks you see just from this roof here and we're only about 17 stories high. In view, there's gotta be 50 tanks. A wood tank forest, it's unbelievable. You know, a lot of people look up and they see them, they, uh, they know they're there, but they don't know what they do. You'll be stopped at a light and a person will come up to you and say, you know why, they still put these things up? I thought they used them on the train stations. Yeah, they think it's something from, uh, you know, two, 300 years ago and no one ever took it down, it's just laying up there. 
they think that, you know, they go up into a building, they turn a faucet on, and, you know, it somehow miraculously gets there. But there's a lot that goes into bringing water into a high-rise building. What do you need? You mean you went up there without a chisel and a hammer? Now they have the whole bottom laid out. Now we're going to start raising the uh, staves. The staves are the outside of the tank. Big chunks of lumber, heavy lumber, because it's yellow cedar. These staves are uh, 12 feet tall. Daddy, it's yours. I got it now. I got it. Now we're passing them hand over hand. We have three guys. One guy down low, one guy in the middle, and we have one guy up on top of the tank who's passing them to another guy up on top. He's the guy that's attached them. That's it. Now you'll see how fast we go around the tank. It'll probably take maybe 45 minutes to an hour to raise the staves. Then once it gets all put together and we put the hoops on it and tighten it up, when the water gets inside the tank, it leaks for about a day. And the water swells up the wood and that's what stops the leaks. It's like a wine barrel. Danny! Yeah! Maybe tell the super to turn the pump on automatic. Well, I'm Maybe or should we? I'm going to tell Julio. That's Julio's friend. Julio! Got water. Yeah, okay. We're filling the tank. We just got the first bit of water going in. When it's very hot, it's a, it's a very tough job to get the sun beating on you. It gets so hot sometimes we can't even touch the tools. You got to put a pair of gloves on to touch the tools. And the best part of putting up a tank in the summertime is when you turn that pump on for the first time. We rinse the tank out because we have a lot of sawdust and things in it. And when we do that first rinse, everybody's underneath that pump line getting wet. We actually swim around a little bit. It's a pretty busy area, the roofs of Manhattan. You know, you look around, you do it every day, and every day you go up on a roof and you'll always see something different that you've never seen before. You see people having picnics up there, you see people eating their lunch up on the roof, you see them doing movies on the roof. We've had times when we were putting up a tank and they were making a commercial and the people would stop with the commercial and come over and watch us. Anytime you see any kind of commercial, anything has to do with anything with a rooftop, you'll always see one or two or three wood tanks on a roof there. People identify New York with these wood tanks. You know, they see New York, they see wood tanks. I know we do. Now, if you've ever wondered if somehow things get into those tanks, well, it does happen. Charlie told us that sometimes he's called to a job when a tenant has bird feathers coming out of the faucet. Coming up, we meet Selma Koch, who runs one of the last old-style bra shops in New York City. I'm Dean Ulsher. You're listening to New York Works, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR National Public Radio. This is New York Works, a special from American Radio Works. I'm Dean Olsher. The Upper West Side of Manhattan is home to the Town Shop, which is stocked with more than 7,000 bras and 10,000 pairs of pantyhose, all in a space smaller than most studio apartments. The Town Shop's been around for more than 100 years, and its ad in the yellow pages contains these modestly boastful four words. We know your size. I'm Selma Koch, going to be 95. 
Originally, the store opened in 1888. It was my father-in-law's business. You know, sometimes old ladies creep in with their, with their nurses and their wheelchairs and their walkers, like me, and they come in and they say, you know, you sold me my trousseau. So what, 70 years ago? I keep saying, gee, I don't look like that. Of course I do, but I say, really, they got terribly old, but I'm fine. Hello, town shop. Yes, we do. You want nursing bras, don't you? Yeah, fine, we can fit you for that. You come in, we'll take care of you. All right. We carry tremendous stocks, thousands of bras, different numbers, different colors. A customer can come in and say, I'll take six, I'll take eight. We have them, because there's depth to our stock. Miss K. What? Three, five, six, one. Can I order that in a 34D? They're not making it in 34. These boxes, look, are absolutely jammed full. These are nothing but panties, bikinis, thongs, briefs. Thongs are very big now. I don't know why I'm thinking. We sold the first underwire bra. In those days, the undergarments were stiff and hard and boned and zipped and even hooked. But the thing that's made this bra business so fantastic is that bosoms have gotten so big. When we started, cups were A, B, and C. Now, some of the most successful Brazil manufacturers are making E, F, G, and H, and they are big. You can almost live in it. <laughs> it looks like a big tent, doesn't it? And they're young things. I mean, they're not just stiff old lady bras. Champion, 141. They make that in 42C? Can try to get it for them. Hello. Can we help you find something? We don't let people roam around the store. The minute a customer comes in, she's approached. You can walk from end to end on a floor in Lord and Taylor and not see a person. Can you think of a bra for me that's very low back? Uh, what do you wear, 34 B? Right. Let me look, huh? Okay. Let's see. There's nothing more, I think, frustrating than to keep on trying things and they don't fit and they don't fit and they don't fit. And you begin to think something's matter with you. I'm gonna make this a little bit tighter, all right? Yeah. I never wore one of these. Well, they're awfully good. No, are they? Look. How does the bra feel? So that's a low one? Low back? Yeah, but how are we doing about the cup? Does put, this get straps? I'll put straps on for you. You know, which might make you feel good. And I'll put them here. Bras are my, really my specialty. I never had to try six brassiers on a customer. Two was plenty. I mean, I knew in a minute what was right, finish, buy it out. Have a great time. Okay. And this is what you call nuisance work, you know? Cook them up, make a complaint. Gunk, gunk, gunk. Man, this is Selma Concha Town Shop. I'm fine, I'm a little bothered. 
Uh, I ordered things in sets. I got the bra and not the pants. I got the pants and not the bra. In 9433, I got the gray and not the pink. In 9461, I got the pink, but not the gray. Well, 10 days isn't so terrible. All right, thank you. Nobody said the retail business was going to be easy. A couple came in a couple of years ago, very well-dressed. And there were two robes. I said, let me shorten the sleeves for you. I said, you don't want to get them wet when you make the coffee. And she said, I never made the coffee. My husband has always given me my breakfast in bed. So when he came to give me his credit card, I said, I've looked for you all my life. I said, if she doesn't survive, will you call me? I love a guy who gave me my breakfast in bed. Well, she did die, but he never called Hello, town shop. Yes. Tell me, you're putting them in a washing machine? Tell the truth. Are you? That's what's doing it. You don't put the baby in a washing machine, do you? But if you come by in a cab, just drop it off. Yeah, and we'll get you back fast. Okay, fine. People respond to people who are nice. People who come in with complaints and come in with hostility and fire the thing down. What are you carrying on about? It's a brazier. You know, I mean, what's, what are you wasting emotion on a brazier for? Okay. No problem to fit you for a bar. Well, is this one going to hide a lot of more stuff? Well, you don't have stuff. I don't have stuff. I really you don't think, think I'd be more comfortable yeah. in that. I don't think you need the other. Honesty is important in selling. And if I think it's terrible, I say it's awful. Take it off. You can do better than that. Listen, it's the same with a doctor. You give them advice. Yeah, now look in the mirror. And also, this has a little push. It gives you a nice uplift. Yeah, that looks Isn't nice. that better? Yeah, much yeah. better. Fitting is important and pleasing the customer is important. But your approach to the customer is the most important thing, I think. Don't jump. Yes. Right, and you, you know what I say, how many miles can you drive a car? Well, I've had a lot of miles, too. <laughs> so if things are wearing out, they're wearing out. Right. Okay, dear. Selma Koch died June 12, 2003. She worked in the store up until the week before. What are you going to do at my age? Sit home and rest and think about dying? It's ridiculous. You know? I've had a good life. A century ago, there were more than a thousand lighthouse keepers in the United States, and now there are two. Today, most lighthouses are turned on and off by a timer of the remaining human operators. One is in Boston. He's a Coast Guard employee. The other, a civilian, is on Brooklyn's Coney Island. Well, my name is Frank Schubert. I'm 85 years old. We're situated on what they call Norton's Point. 
It's a jut of land that's going out into the uh, lower bay. When you look out, you got the Atlantic Ocean on your left. Straight ahead is New Jersey. To your right is New York. You can look out the front door and see for 15 miles. Right now, I'm the last civilian lighthouse keeper left in the United States. And I think they keep me around because of public relations, that's it. Because we do get a lot of visitors. Visitors, visitors, visitors. It drives me crazy. I've had people come out here and want to spend weekends out here. They want to pay me to put them up. They want to spend weekends just hanging around a lighthouse. I don't know why they like lighthouses. When was the last time you were on a lighthouse? To you, it's romantic. But when you see it every day, day after day, it's not romantic anymore. Get out of the way, buttonhead. Come on, move. Years ago, you didn't have that many visitors. At that time, we had uh, the old lighting system, not the electricity. It was all kerosene. And when you lit it, if you didn't have smoke glasses on, that flashes as soon as you lit it with a match, you couldn't see for 20 minutes. But outside of keeping the light operating, keeping it clean, maintaining it, the only thing you could do was fish. That's why I don't bother fishing here anymore. I was up to my neck in fishing. See this boat out here? That's the tanker coming in. Everything comes in and out of the harbor. It's got to go by the front door. But most of the shore stations have either been sold or closed up. You don't need this light anymore. People can say to me, why don't you retire? Well, you go out the front door, you've got to go approximately 40 feet to get to the tower. Once you get to the tower, there's 80-some-odd steps to get up to the top of the tower. And that's your commute. So would you retire? I got one son living out in Albuquerque. He wants me to go out there. How much water do you see out in Albuquerque? It feels like you're all bottled in. Right here, you can sit on the front porch and take a look for 15 miles and see water. No, if I ever leave here, I'd probably have to live someplace close to water. I got to like it. Just so you know, Frank Schubert's lighthouse on Coney Island is not the only one left in New York City. There's another one under the George Washington Bridge on the Manhattan side. The Little Red Lighthouse was built in 1921 and put up for auction in 1951 after the bridge was built, but was saved from demolition thanks to a flood of letters. Now it's operated by the city. Pasquale Spensieri spends his days driving around Brooklyn looking for dull blades. When he rings the bell on his truck, the owners of upholstery shops and restaurants and pizza parlors know that it's time to get out their knives and scissors to be sharpened. It's not something that you see very often these days, but in the Depression, there were hundreds of guys going around with pedal-operated grinders strapped to their backs. My name is Pasquale Spensieri. And I'm a scissor sharpener, a knife sharpener. 
This is my truck. This is my office. This is my workplace. When I hear the bell, sometimes they get confused. One time an old lady came to me and says, give me a chocolate. I says, no, I don't sell ice cream here. I got the wrong truck. We're on New York Avenue and 52nd Street. This is a fabric store. We go see my customer. Come on in. How are you? Okay. How do you need any scissors shopping today? I do, but I don't know where my scissors are. Come on. We got to do some work over here. <laughs> yeah, okay, here. Give it to me. Hey, look, what happened to this scissor? Uh, this you can't close no more. No. You see this here? The plastic. Throw it away. Throw it away. Okay. All right. I'll be right back. Now we have uh, two, four, five pairs of scissors we gotta do. We gotta go to work. Knives are much easier than scissors. It's a knife, it's straight. It's easy. Scissors, uh, it's not so easy. You gotta know what you're doing. Some people that think this is a very low-class business, that you go around and ask people, uh, like you're, you're a low-class or something. That's what makes you feel better sometimes. For me, I got my own here. I could do whatever I want. You know, I did this all my life and I still like to do. I enjoy the sharpening the scissors. I'm attached to the grindstone. <laughs> okay. Very good. See, sometimes if you do too fast, they think you didn't do a good job. So that's why it's just <laughs> sometimes I sit down and sit down with my newspaper. Just take a couple of minutes more and you go back. Okay, lady. Says it ready. Great, great. Oh. Okay, I'll see you next time. Oh, bye. bye. That's one stop. Keep moving. You can't stay in one place. <laughs> my father used to do this business, my uncle. They started in 1930, Depression time, 30 or 31, I don't know. But they used to walk in the street, looking for work. They used to go around with a little, with a little thing on the shoulder, a little thing with a stone on. Then they used to have a little bell in the hand. Ding, 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 ding. They used to go around and scream, knife shop, and scissor shop, and arrotino, arrotino, arrotino. Arrotino means a grinder. That was a tough job. Now I got to be a grinder myself. Oh, what a noisy city, huh? We're in Brooklyn, 47th Street now, and that's Borough Park. Yo, how are you? I know a lot of people. Borough Park is mine. I used to go to all the way downtown Brooklyn, Flushing Avenue, all the way on the other side. There used to be a lot of shops down there, the factories. I used to stop in one, one, one building I stay all day. I used to go to a place that was 300 people over there. Everyone, each one had a scissors. Pick them up, and shop, and bring them back. 
there was plenty of work for everybody. Today it's different. You don't even see a grind anymore. It's finished. Open the door, Moshi. Good morning, Bruce. Hey, I thought you only worked for me. I just come in. You need anything? Yeah, I might as well see here already. Oh. Back to normal? Yeah, pretty good. Not too bad, but uh, I had cramps in my hands all day. But whatever. Let's go. I gotta go to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Good luck. Take, Take care. care. Nice seeing you. Bye-bye. I'm 70 years old. I can't work no more like I used to do. I used to work 12 hours a day. You know, nobody wants to stop. Sometimes you want to you want to work until you die. Otherwise, it dull up. My brains, it get dull. <laughs> it's not easy. Like the winter time, you get you cold in and out. The summer is hot in here. It's my trade. I pass my life on the truck. I'm a grinder. Finito. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To get more information and see photographs from the New York Works series, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll also find information on ordering a tape copy of this program. That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Coming up, we meet one of the last commercial fishermen in New York City. Listening to New York Works, a special from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. I'm Dean Olsher. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is New York Works, a special program from American Radio Works. I'm Dean Olsher. If you like Latin music, you're likely to have heard a percussion section that includes a cowbell. And if it was a record that was made in New York City, chances are also good that that cowbell was made by Cali Rivera. Up until the 1960s, cowbells were handmade, many of them in small workshops in New York and Cuba. Today, the bells are more popular than ever, but most come from factories overseas. Except for one place in the Bronx, a one-room workshop where they're still made the old-fashioned way. I'm Cali Rivera, and... My shop is right in the heart of the Bronx. The Bronx, you know the Bronx? Yeah. I'm about two and a half blocks from Yankee Stadium. We make any kind of caution instrument, but 
my main thing here is the bells. At the beginning, everything that I was on my mind was bells, bells, bells. And what, that's what I started with. Bells, bells, nothing else. You know why? In salsa or any kind of music, like Caribbean music, the cowbell is number one. Everybody's going to follow the bell. The bell is the hammer. We call it the hammer right there. Talk, 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 talk. When you hear the puck, 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 that's the rhythm. This type of music, and they need this type of instrument. <laughs> this is the bell that we make. The bell has to be bright like this. Now this is the bell that this, the factory made bell, machine made in Thailand. That's a dead bell. This is ready to go to sleep. Now, the difference between these bells is the power of the machine. When they put these dies on the machine, the machine goes rung and makes the bell one shot. It's easy for them to do it this way, but not for us. We do a lot of things to get this bell done. This is the way that we bend the bells. This is a bending die right here. Put the metal in the die and we bend the bell and boom, go. You have to have some muscles to, to do this. Now what you need is we use the hammer. We got this here. See, the bell is complete. Now all you have to do is weld it. Now, these type of bells, they come in different, uh, like high pitch, medium pitch, low pitch. You can hear how low this is. Hey! We got another one. It's high, high pitch. This is what you call zoom high, C high. All my family, they love music. They play their music. My father used to be like me. I used to make the guitars, fix guitars, and my mother used to cook some days. Maybe by that time I was 12 years old, 13, there was about five or six guys in the house. And they were old, they play guitars and sing. My mother used to serve me the food or whatever, I used to take the fork. And when they hear the music, they start banging on the plates. Sounds like a cowbell for me. And everybody was singing and right there. And that was beautiful. I never thought I was going to be a, a bell maker, but this is almost 30, 35 years already. And I'm here making bells, still making bells. Millions of bells came up from here. That's a story, beautiful story, eh? <laughs> It is so easy to forget when you walk among the steel and concrete of New York that only a hundred years ago, the borough of Queens was farmland. 
the dawn of the 21st century, there was only one family farm left in Queens. On 73rd Street, right off the Clearview Expressway, next to PS26, the Klein 